Hello again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. My name is Jeffrey Kwame, your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. And this podcast comes to you thanks to the generosity of all of our friends at Mountainside Treatment Center in Canaan, Connecticut. Mountainside provides individualized clinical, medical, and wellness services to those struggling with substance use and mental health disorders. Each treatment plan is structured through collaboration with the client, their family, and healthcare professionals to offer every client their best chance at long-term recovery. Mountainside is proud to be the only rehabilitation center in the state to be accredited by both CARP International and the Joint Commission. Mountainside is currently recruiting passionate and talented individuals for its Connecticut and New York locations. Every employee, regardless of their position, plays a role in improving the lives of clients and their families. If you're interested in joining the Mountainside team, please visit mountainside.com forward slash careers. And on behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. In 2018, William White, who was unquestionably America's most prolific and well-known writer on substance use disorder policy and recovery, had stated, if there's anything modern research on recovery is teaching us, it's two critical lessons. People with alcohol and drug problems, even the most severe of such problems, are not a homogeneous population, and there are many pathways and styles of long-term recovery. And he goes on to say that all pathways should be celebrated. These pathways can be clinical, non-clinical, and even self-managed, and the different options available under each heading are very large in numbers. Knowing that there's no one-size-fits-all solution, increasing the healthy options that are provided uh, are available, the more people can be reached. Today, as Bill White also says, we celebrate a specific recovery support pathway, CrossFit training. A very common acronym in the CrossFit community is AMRAP, which stands for as many reps as possible. But today we're going to change that a little bit and discuss a different potential meaning for the acronym, a modern recovery assisting pathway. Our guest today is Dr. Meg Patterson, who recently completed research on the relationship between CrossFit and substance use disorder recovery. Dr. Patterson joined Texas A&M University as an assistant professor in the Department of Health and Kinesiology in 2018, and her research focuses on using network analysis to measure how social and spatial networks impact the overall well-being of individuals and communities. In short, she investigates how social connections and social context can impact health and behavior. Most recently, this has involved using a network perspective to study physical and mental health outcomes relative to group-based exercise participation, interpersonal violence on college campuses, addiction recovery communities, and adolescent physical activity, among others. Patterson received her BA in psychology and MPH in community health from Baylor University, and you earned her PhD in health education from Texas A&M University. Before becoming professor at A&M, Dr. Patterson served as the Director of Wellness at Baylor University for five years. Thanks for spending a little bit of your time between semesters with us, Dr. Patterson. Thank you so much for having me. Um, For one, I am fascinated by research in the field of substance use disorders and recovery, and where I see most studies are conducted by psychologists, physicians, and those with long histories in the professional SUD community. As a professor of health education, How did you become interested in this subject? Yeah, I I love this story. Um, I, you know, I love the fact that how I got here has so much to do with the people I've met, which is really the baseline for so much of what I research. So it kind of works 
well, but you know, as you mentioned earlier, I was the director of wellness at Baylor University from 2013 until 2018. And during that time, um, one of my, I would say the proudest contribution I made during my time there was I launched an addiction recovery program for college students specifically that were going to Baylor. And that all started, I remember this so vividly, I was sitting in my office one day and I had a knock on my door, just an, a group of students, they didn't have an appointment, uh, there were three of them, and they came in and they asked me if we had any AA meetings on campus. And it was one of those moments, you know, we spend so much time as health educators and public health professionals trying to prevent alcohol use and substance use among college students specifically. But it was one of those moments that I realized we had never offered services for people who were in recovery. And so that was really the beginning of my interest in this subject matter was working with these students from the ground up to create services for those who were pursuing recovery. And making what would otherwise be a hostile environment. College campuses can be really, really tough for people in recovery. There's lots of opportunity. There's a lot of stress, high cravings. It's just, it can be really rough and you don't necessarily have that community piece. And so we started working together and years later, somehow a family decided to give us lots of money and we started a recovery program. And here I am later, still really invested in that particular effort because I just, I got to know the the people behind the subject and just really became passionate about it. It's a really unique way to kind of get started in. The college recovery movement is really uh, spreading across the country. A colleague of mine at the SAFE Project in Washington, D.C., actually they have a program for recovery campuses, and we're starting to see that more. Um, and I think it's a great thing. Um, I, you know, I know the pressures of college and I know being an athlete in college, I know what the pressures are to perform and things like that. So, um, you know, alcohol was the easiest and then the simplest way to kind of deal with that. And if you don't have somebody to have a community to engage with, you know, it can be hard to stay away if that's what you're trying to do. Um, it, it's not surprising that the social connection and sense of belonging are mentioned significantly in the anecdotal evidence that you have. What are some of the unique things about the CrossFit community that you have discovered? Yeah, so I'm going to back up a little bit and again, sure. tell a little bit more of the story as to how I got there. So, you know, in meeting these students and putting this recovery program together, I just started asking a lot of questions because I don't have a background or a history with substance use or um, recovery. And so I had a lot to learn. And in just having some conversations with students, I realized two major things emerged, what you just mentioned, one of which being social connection and social belonging. So having people and having folks you're connected to who you have something in common with, who are behind you, um, but also having a group to belong to. Several students talked about in their recovery process, they either had to abandon former identities because it wasn't conducive to recovery, or sometimes their communities abandoned them because they were labeled an addict now. And so establishing that belonging and being connected and supported were really important. And that wasn't surprising to me. That lines up with a lot of the practices even now is getting people connected and getting people into groups and things like that. But the other thing that was a little bit more surprising to me was exercise came up a lot. And I have more history research-wise in fitness and in, his, and in exercise. And so that got my interest for sure. 
And students just told me that, you know, when they, when they're exercising regularly and they, they have that control and they're healthy, they're able to manage their cravings better. They have lower stress. They just overall function better, which also lines up with what you would expect. And so those two things were swirling around in my brain for a long time. And I thought, yes, those things independently can be really good, but what if we push those things together? What if we can have an exercise experience that is also full of social connection and social belonging. And so I had never considered CrossFit before. I was actually kind of scared and intimidated by CrossFit, if I'm being completely honest. But I ended up meeting, again, social connections. I met a a scholar. Her name's Dr. Katie Heinrich. She is at uh, Kansas State University, and she has dedicated the majority of her research to CrossFit studies. And how not only the exercise modality itself, but the community that you experience within CrossFit is impactful. She's looked at cancer survivors, veterans, different subgroups of the population and how those two things are important. And that was when a light bulb went off in my head. You know, this was right when I was leaving Baylor and starting as a professor at Texas A&M, trying to launch my research trajectory. And so I had this, like we talked about this anecdotal evidence. I had started piecing together some empirical work And she and I were, were um, connected in a mentoring program. And that's when I thought, oh my goodness, CrossFit has both of those things. And so, um, you know, you ask the question, what, what does CrossFit bring? How does this, you know, work for that? And for better or worse, one thing about CrossFit is that you belong and you have this badge that you're a CrossFitter. Sometimes it can be really annoying to people outside of CrossFit. <laughs> There's this running joke that, um, you know, start a timer and see how long it takes for someone before they tell you that they're in CrossFit because they just, <laughs> they love it. They embody it. But that's the belonging piece, right? There's this uh, this identity that you you get to wear as a CrossFitter and you don't have to be a good CrossFitter. You just have to be a part of this movement and this group. Um, also, it's very much a group-based workout, you know, and so another thing about me, I've taught spin classes for a long time and you could label spin classes as group exercise, but in reality, the people taking a spin class don't interact with one another. It's more of a me and them, me as the instructor and them as the group. But in CrossFit, you're more interactive with the other people involved. And there's some camaraderie that goes on that doesn't necessarily exist in, for example, spin cycling. But anyway, those are a couple of the things as far as the community part that I think CrossFit has is this belonging piece. You are a CrossFitter, you belong as soon as you walk in the door. There's the joint suffering, but also joint triumph that comes from doing CrossFit with other people. When you do a really hard workout and you all get through it together, that bonds you. Um, and, and you have people rallying around you. You have people who you're looking up to like, oh, that person can do something that I never thought I could do, but seeing them do it, I think I could probably master that or whatever. But then also, and this is where Dr. Heinrich's, um, her research comes in is it's also just really good for you. It's a really effective style of fitness that is truly modifiable and scalable to really any, um, any level, but it works and it is effective physiologically and just physically in general. So I think those factors, the fact that they all happen in the same spot at the same time are what really got me thinking, wow, CrossFit could be a good model for this. When we talk about the the social interaction, and you had just mentioned, um, you know, the struggle 
the pain and the triumphs. I think when you're doing something together, the struggle seems smaller and the triumph seems greater because you're not alone. Exactly. Um, and that every, when you're in it together, there's something special about that. It's not easy to explain. But also, um, you know, one of the things that individuals with substance use disorder histories that we see is that, that is hard to overcome is that need for immediate gratification. And what I think when you get endorphins and, and things that are happening as your metabolism is increasing, you do, um, you start to see that more, the old runner's high. And being a sprinter, I never had the runner's high. If it had a corner, it was too long. <laughs> You're missing out. <laughs> um, but I think that that you know, plays an impact. And there's some similar activity on the brain and body in that regards, in a healthier way. I, I agree. And I think, um, you know, one thing about, so I started doing CrossFit when I got into this, this research, I figured I have to know what I'm talking about. So begrudgingly, I started CrossFit and I will admit, I totally drank the Kool-Aid and I'm a huge believer in it now. But one thing that you were talking about that high, that immediate gratification there's something about being able to do something that you did not think that you could do. And that happens fairly quickly in CrossFit because there is that support and you have coaching and you have people that will tell you, yeah, like you can do this, you can do this. And it's amazing because I probably independently wouldn't have tried several of the things that I have attempted at CrossFit in a safe and supportive environment. And that is super gratifying. And that is, it gives you that high, it's different than the physiological endorphin high, but it's this confidence boost and this excitement that comes along with accomplishing something you didn't think maybe you were capable of. So one thing you had mentioned earlier was coming into this field without knowing a lot about it and asking questions. I wish some of our more seasoned professionals would remember that none of us really know anything about the person we're talking to. We have to listen and learn from them about themselves. So uh, that's a valuable lesson that I think is important. You know, as I mentioned uh, before to you in conversation is, you know, my background um, is a, I was professionally trained in group work. And one of the things that, I, that I've learned and Urban Yalom, who will always sit on a high pedestal for me, is, is that there are many unseen factors that occur in group work. And I would assume that they happen in CrossFit, because it is group work of a different kind. People are in it together. Um, and what Yalom called these were curative factors, the curative factors of group work. And can we talk about some of these things and, and their appropriateness to CrossFit? Yeah. The first thing that happens uh, that he recognized, one of the things is catharsis, right? And we know that catharsis is only one part of any healing whatsoever, but it's getting that, that initial emotional rush and things out. So, but the catharsis of CrossFit seems to be not an emotional release, but that cathartic effect of pushing oneself to the state of being physically tired, physically exhausted. Mm -hmm. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah. You know, it, it's, so I have a good friend who's actually um, studied a lot about what he calls spiritual catharsis, and he's done it in the context of long distance runners. And it, and his research has really looked in, I mean, we're talking ultra marathoners, you know, and where you really have to get to the space of pushing past physical ability and digging into that mental capacity to get where, you know, to the end of this race or whatever. And that those are some of the most 
empowering parts of, of someone's journey as an athlete. And I think the same thing with CrossFit and with really any sort of like physically demanding type of, of workout is, yeah, you get to this place where you can't rely on just going through the motions. Like you really have to engage mentally and it is a cathartic experience. And again, kind of going back to what we were talking about, it leads you to this place of accomplishment and freedom that you didn't know was possible before. And it creates this grit and this inner strength. And I think as far as, and this is total, this, I have no empirical background to this. This is just my assumption or my guess is that in, in, in pulling that into a recovery space, you know, from meeting people in recovery, these people are the strongest people I've ever met in my life. Folks who have been in long-term recovery Mm -hmm. and it takes grit and it takes catharsis and it takes pushing past those physical discomforts and getting into this mental space. And I think it could only be helpful experiencing that in CrossFit or anywhere else really to remember that, you know, your mind and body are connected and it's such an empowering experience. So to go back to what you were saying, I do think that that exists in CrossFit. And I think again, like rallying around other people, it helps you get to that place of, I know that I can do this. I know that I can push past this, what I would have put a barrier on myself beforehand. And it again, creates that grit that I think is necessary for really anything in life that's hard. Um, But of course, recovery as well. I would assume that based on my own personal experiences that that physical exhaustion that you get at the end also is incredibly mind clearing. It's incredibly Mm -hmm. peaceful because your mind is clear. You're just, you may be thinking about how tired you are, but it provides a different perspective because the, the everyday challenges that you deal with aren't necessarily there at that moment because you really are living in that moment and being Mm -hmm. aware um, of what's going on inside you. I think that's an amazing feeling. Yeah. And I I do think when you get to that point to push yourself to that place, you do have to be so focused. And so, you know, you can't be thinking about other things and you, you know, so it, it requires clarity. And that, that moment where you're done with the workout, like what you were just talking about when you're done with that physical exertion and your mind has been focused and cleared it, yeah, you're, you're, you're free, you know, and that's what my friend's research was about. He, he interviewed these ultra marathoners about what they were thinking about in those moments. And his background is very much, he likes to look at spirituality and sport, not necessarily, not necessarily religion, but spirituality in general. And he was saying, you know, folks would talk about these major spiritual moments they had in those moments of catharsis and that, if they believed in God, for example, that's when they felt closest to God or most in nature or most in themselves and outside of themselves at the same time, you know? And um, I just think that that's really, really cool. It's a perfect fit because uh, one of the things that we know about long-term recovery is there has to be some sort of spiritual connection and people can define that for whatever, in whatever manner works for them. Um, but to be connected to that larger than themselves, which kind of goes into one of the things that Yala mentions that I was going to talk about a little bit later on, but it fits perfectly is there's an existential factor that occurs when in a group activity like CrossFit, you were part of something bigger than yourself. You wear that badge that says I'm a CrossFitter and you may drive everyone in your circle nuts, <laughs> but it really is a belonging. Absolutely. For people in long-term recovery, one of my criticisms of 
of the field. Um, and, and there are many, as my people that listen to me know and, and know me, is that we really focus on how are we going to help that person in early recovery. And we kind of help them get involved in a community where they feel like they belong, a community of other people um, in recovery. But to live life, you know, on the terms that life requires, you have to be part of other communities as well. You can't live in the cocoon of just the recovery community because you, you may have to work and your boss or the company isn't going to be supportive of that. You know, you've got to um, get a new social network. Some people may be in recovery, others that are not. So it really is about stepping outside your comfort zone a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like that's what you did when you went to CrossFit. It really stepped outside. <laughs> I did. <laughs> Pat on the back, right? Yeah. Um, I I totally, you know, that reminds me, I did, I did a study while I was still at Baylor and I was looking at the students in recovery, their support networks and who were they going to for help, for support, who could they go to with a personal matter and trust. And I was trying to assess not only who were important people in these people's networks, but also structurally, how, how would social networks structurally be the best, uh, best orchestrated for long-term recovery. Um, That's a really flowery way of saying it. But one thing that came out of that study was that support from other folks in recovery is so key, especially for college students in recovery, because they do share that identity and they do get it, you know, whereas most college students don't, they don't understand what it's like to try to stay sober while in college or things like that. But interestingly, when students were surrounded only by folks, other folks who were in recovery, they had the highest stress scores, which we know stress can be a really, really high risk factor for, um, oh my gosh, um, relapse. I'm so sorry. (laughs) That just fell out of my brain. Um, And so, you know, and I talked to students about this and asked, you know, I thought surrounding them with people in recovery was the best model. You know, why is this? maybe not as healthy as I thought. And in talking with them, I learned, you know, it can be really taxing to only be around other folks in recovery. And there is something stressful about stepping out of that if you're not used to having other identities and communities. And, you know, there, I think it's a balance. I think you do benefit so much from folks who have been there, you know, that, that is no, we know that that's so key but also having identities that are not necessarily associated with identity as addict, but identity as CrossFitter has nothing to do with you as an addict. And you build these, these connections and these uh, competencies, like we were just talking about that are independent, but supportive of your recovery. And I think that is really, really helpful in the long term. Like you talked about having both, I would never say to abandon having folks that are supportive of you who are in recovery, but I think it's really, it's a sweet spot to have these multiple, you know, pockets of, of resources and support within someone's network. And I think that that's just everyday life. We, we have different peer groups, so to speak, based on whatever we're doing at the moment. Um, I have a group of work, work peers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but in my personal life, I have peers that we do this with, and then I do that with. Um, so we, it's about kind of fitting, getting ourselves into life all around. Um, one of the things that Yalom talks about as well in group work is cohesion, that united for a common goal. And I, it, it really sounds like CrossFit, uh, and I know nothing about it because I'm a coward, <laughs> uh, really helps with that cohesion of, of 
feeling not just connected, a part of a group, but really connected to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so one of the studies we did, uh, one of the first ones I did was reviewing interviews of CrossFitters and trying to figure out what what social themes were popping up. Um, and it's amazing because these these interviewees were not necessarily prompted to talk about the community of CrossFit. We just asked in general, what makes CrossFit effective for you? And the most common theme that came out was this camaraderie piece, this we're all in this together, we're connected, we're, we're a part of something together, which kind of bleeds into what you just talked about, but also this cohesion piece of it works, not because it's a hard or effective workout, although that's true, it works because we're connected to one another. And several people talked about, you know, if I miss a session, guaranteed I'll have two, three, four text messages checking on me, asking if I'm okay, you know, when will I be back? And also the support of, I saw that you just did, you know, you lifted more than you lifted last time we did something like this. That's amazing. There's these points of connection before, during, and after this workout that I think do create that camaraderie piece that makes for an effective um, modality, you know? And so, yeah, I think cohesion is so key um, to, for an effect, for a group to be effective. You know, if you don't have cohesion, the group will ultimately fizzle, you know? So that's a, it's an important piece. One of the things I know, uh, you know, from formalized exercise programs and things in a group is that the inclusive language it's we are going to do this we are going to help we and in our fields i think that we is an important aspect of, of, of in substance use disorder recovery that it's i'm not doing it alone i'm working hard and there are people who support my work and then the same in 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 exercise i know that when i was in college i lost a bet with my college track coach um, and because I lost the bet, me and a couple other guys had to go to aerobics class. We were teasing him about going to aerobics. And we <laughs> went to aerobics. And you got to remember, this is the mid-80s. Aerobics were big. And we looked like <laughs> fools and learned our lesson. But they were still, come on, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. That we weren't singled out, although then we were petrified that <laughs> that went on and said it was going to happen. But it wasn't. It was very inclusive. You know, it's always we, we, we. Um, Another one of the things I talk about is, is guidance. In in a group activity, there's guidance. And so somebody is, is either leading or is a de facto leader of, of the group. You kind of look to them for what's next uh, or to help manage the unknown. And I think that's an important aspect of it as well. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think you jumped into CrossFit and just said, I'm going to do this without. <laughs> no way. No way. I, you have this mental model of anything that you get, you know, you do before you actually do it. And I had this picture of those, you know, Olympic lifters that have like the belts around them and are just huge and lifting so much weight. I remember I, I walked into my first CrossFit, CrossFit workout and they have coaches that are trained and do a, I mean, I can't necessarily say for every coach because I haven't worked with every coach, but the ones I have are so good. And I was required for the first two weeks that I was in CrossFit, instead of using a bar and plates like for lifts, I had to use a PVC pipe and I had to be trained on the movements. And they said, until you get some muscle memory and you know what this is supposed to feel like, I'm not going to put any weight on you because I don't want you to get injured. And so that was it was a little bit humbling because I was like, no, 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 I can do it. I can do it. Just, just take the time. And they were very supportive. And 
Um, you know, and then from there, this is actually connected to some of my research. I just did a network analysis on CrossFit gyms where I mathematically tried to configure who were those leaders and who were the people that other folks looked to. And it's true, like what you just talked about, you have the formal coaches who are actually there to make sure you're safe and that you're doing things correctly. But then you have these non-formal leaders that emerge typically because they've been around for a long time and people trust them. But they're so helpful in moving you and, and helping you improve. You know, I remember the first time I did, I moved from the PVC pipe to an actual bar with weight on it. And um, this girl, her name's Corey, uh, she's, she was at my gym and she just says, Hey, I've seen your, your, your technique. You are so ready for this. And I trusted her because she's so good at CrossFit and she was one of those emergent leaders. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's really important because it, it's a different version of support, right? We have emotional support. We have tangible, tangible support. Then we have that instructional support that we need to accomplish our goals. And so I, I like that. It's not just, it's not just raw, raw support that exists. There's lots of different angles of it happening. Uh, Talking about that, I'm in my head of imagining and I'm curious is if you're looking at the individuals who become those de facto leaders in CrossFit groups, do they assume leadership positions, de facto leadership positions in other parts of their life? Is it just part of their personality? Is it a learned experience? I just, it, just something that, that is curious to me. You, you um, might have just planted an, a study idea in me. <laughs> um, I need to compare how people are positioned in various networks in their life. Um, I did account for personality. So I measured personality yeah. controlled for it. And there wasn't like one, and I just looked at the big five, which I know this group of people probably knows way more about personality than I do, but extroversion, for example, was not um, predictive of being a leader or, you know, in any of the big five personality traits. I did control for that, but I do think that there are folks who just kind of gravitate to being a leader and being a model. I think in CrossFit, it does come with, you need a skill set as well, and that requires discipline and different things. But I'm not sure, you know, I'm thinking about Corey, the person I just mentioned, and she doesn't strike me as somebody who would be the loudest person in the room, you know, or, or somebody who you would think, oh, that, that person's going to lead a charge. Um, but I don't know. I, I have not, I have not measured it. So I'm not you sure. Know, my interest in that comes because as an administrator now and, and, uh, and my work is different and, and I got more education. I've got a master's in nonprofit leadership. So the idea of leadership development is always in my head. Um, because this is a field that I work in that we need more leaders and young leaders to take the reins and make it better. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, every generation is better than the last. We want that to happen. So we want to develop leaders. So I just think about things like that. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, you know, how you talked about earlier that every individual that you work with has different needs. And like, sometimes we need to go back to the basics and, and remember that one size doesn't necessarily fit all and getting to know who it is you're working with. I think that's something that has come up as I've become a network analyst and looking at different groups and how they're structured, that every group is, is varied, you know? And so who makes sense for leadership roles in different groups might change. Now, I do think there's um, skill sets that come with leadership development that apply across the board. But I think that's something I've learned too, is that the person who's suited and, and best fit for a, a leadership position 
whether formal or not formal in a collegiate recovery group may be different in a CrossFit group, maybe different at an organization that, you know, a workplace or something like that. But I think sometimes we also, we also have to remember the idiosyncrasies of groups in addition to just idiosyncrasies of individuals. But anyway, I'm sorry, I cut you off. And, and um, social context comes into play significantly in that. Um, mm-hmm. What is the environment that we're, we're looking at? Where does, does it fit? Uh, like I said, it's just one of those things that, that I find incredibly curious. Um, we also talk about, or the Alam also talks about something that we mentioned in terms, it goes along with catharsis in a way. It's that self-understanding. We learn about ourselves when our minds and our bodies are under stress. Mm-hmm. Recovery is both your mind and body is under stress because people may be dealing with cravings or withdrawal and other things that are that are absolutely horrific to deal with. Um, and you're doing the same in physical activity as you're pushing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Something that I have found um, that you have to learn in CrossFit, which I think is related to recovery, is when to go and when to stop, you know, and when am I putting myself in a position that it could get bad? And when am I in that sweet spot where I'm just enough challenge, but I'm changing for good, you know, and you have to exactly, exactly what you just said. You have to be self-understanding to know that line and know, because CrossFit, I, it's come so, such a long way from when it was first started. It got a lot of flack for injury and for people getting hurt and they shifted focus um, within the last five plus years to really make sure from a coaching perspective and just a client perspective that to know that line and not injury is not where you want to be. And you don't want, you know, you want to continue this. This should be sustainable and long-term. And so that parallel with recovery, knowing yourself, knowing whether it's triggers or situations or, um, you know, physical states or whatever it might be that pushes you to that line and adjusting accordingly. So, for example, if I come into a workout and I know that I feel very fatigued, I also know that my form is probably going to be less than stellar. And so I probably need to go down on weight that day. And it's not, nobody needs to be a hero. <laughs> That's They say that at the gym, like, don't be a hero, do what you need to do to get the most effective workout that you can get. Um, Cause, and that's kind of part of the social support pieces. Nobody, everybody will cheer you on for your victories, but nobody will hold you accountable to recognizing or not hold you accountable. Nobody will hold, hold it against you. If you recognize your, your limits and stay within them, because that's, what's going to lead to more victories, not being a hero. You know what I mean? Right. It's just, again, self-understanding, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. understand how much I can do. I wish I had that a couple of months ago when I overdid it on my rowing machine and I, I hurt my rotator cuff and it, that's a, because your arm is always moving. It's a hard one to recover. Um, yeah. machine. That's and it's my own fault. <laughs> I can do this. And my form was lousy and it, and I got hurt. And, you know, I'd love to blame the machine. It just doesn't work that way. <laughs> um, so another interesting aspect of the overall positive effect of CrossFit um, is that you're, when you're in CrossFit, if I'm in substance use disorder recovery, I can't guarantee or know that anyone else around there is. So it's a completely different connection with people. It's really based on what I'm doing um, in the moment. How is that, from your perspective, 
How was that connection for individuals in recovery or how important is it to be a part of the larger community? Yeah, so this is something I learned a lot when I was working with students at Baylor. Um, they talked about, and this was very much in a church perspective. I've, I found, and again, this is another piece of just anecdotal evidence. Mm-hmm. I found that a lot of our students, you know, I was at Baylor University. It was a religious school. And so there was this dichotomy. There were students who either really invested in the church post, you know, treatment and into their recovery or totally abandoned it. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure out how this, I mean, it was a black and white split. It felt like, and in talking with some of these students, uh, one of them that had had been raised in the church and had totally abandoned it was they said something that stuck with me. They said, church is a place that you behave first and then you belong. And they said, as someone in recovery, I need to belong first and then I'll behave, you know? And I thought that was such a powerful thought. And that I think is something CrossFit does well, is you don't ever have to participate in a workout, just walking through the door, you belong. And then that's what encourages you to quote unquote behave. And when I say behave, I just mean act, not mm-hmm. behave as far as follow rules, but just, just engage and walking through the door, you belong. And so then you're going to engage in the workout and be a part of the community and and do. And so as far as what you just asked, I think that's something this is, is my hypothesis for long-term recovery. If we keep that mindset of belong and, and then behave instead of behave and then belong, I think that it can change the game. And I, that's why another reason why I think CrossFit could be such a useful tool for someone engaging in long-term recoveries because you really do belong before you ever have to do anything. For individuals who have been stigmatized by their family, by friends, by the community, by anybody for having a substance use disorder, we know that many people experience that, to just belong because you are you mm-hmm. is an incredible healing aspect of, of you know any kind of support activity. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's good for anybody, so, but especially for the folks that have struggled to belong. And even in the substance using community, there are different strata of what you use and how you use. So they stigmatize themselves internally. People really grow to, to own that, right? That self-defeating, self-fulfilling prophecy. And this kind of does away with that. It challenges that immediately. Um, one of the things that, that, or a good number of the people in my organization that we serve are prevention professionals in the public health space. And what are some of the implications of your work that can aid prevention efforts? Yeah, I mean, I so like I told you earlier, so much of my research, particularly before I got into addiction recovery, is physical activity focused. And I believe, <laughs> ironically, that the two things that can lead to the longest, happiest life are being around people, connecting with people, and being and moving and staying active. And when it comes to prevention, it may not prevent everything. You know, we may still face obstacles, but they will be so much easier and will overcome so much faster. It will prevent some of the more severe um, mental and physical health issues in most cases. You know, you can't say it with 100%. There are people who are super healthy who end up with lousy outcomes. But generally speaking... Wrote all the books on running and, and had a heart attack. Exactly, yeah. Um, but I think as far as my work is concerned and 
for someone in recovery too, you know, it's not just relapse we're trying to prevent. We're also creating a holistic life. That's one of my favorite things about recovery, just as a process. It's about well-being. It's not just about avoiding a substance. And so that's what engaging in activity and engaging in community can really foster is overall wellness. And that's going to prevent so many hardships that we don't have to otherwise face if we engage in those things. And so I think promoting any sort of activity, you know, I, I love CrossFit. It's where my path has led me, but I don't think CrossFit is for everyone. And I would not, um, I would never hold that against somebody if they didn't like CrossFit. I bet that there are other, other opportunities to be active and to be in community that have nothing to do with CrossFit. I just haven't measured them empirically. Um, but yeah, I think from a prevention and health promotion standpoint, getting, getting people active and getting people connected, it would, it will never be hurtful. It will only be beneficial. And I think will prevent some of these things that are plaguing our health as, as a nation. And yeah, I think it's really powerful. And as a researcher, you know, you mentioned outcomes a lot and I, and I find that, uh, really important because one of the things that our field, this field has struggled with is measuring outcomes. You know, we look, when we measure the effectiveness of treatment, we're measuring visits, Mm-hmm. We're not taking as much into account of, of the individual's experience. And we struggle to identify what are real outcomes. And in this we since it's been 35 years, 45 years, excuse me, since we've had any real significant outcome changes when we look at the numbers that we do have. Um, and prevention is especially hard to measure outcomes. So I, but I think it's important that we have a way to do that so that we know that what we're doing is effective. Um, so that we continue to do what works and we kind of set aside um, what doesn't work. Uh, The initial research that you did measured associations and relationships, and it really provided evidence for correlations between CrossFit and recovery. And one of the things I talk about on this podcast a lot is that correlation doesn't mean causation and they're very different. Uh, (laughs) So there's correlation between CrossFit and recovery. Is the next step for you to do more research with a classic experimental design? Yes, um, absolutely. So I, one of my roles at A&M is I teach a graduate level research methods class. And that is one of the phrases that is just shoved down those poor students' throats is that correlation does not equate to causation. And so you have to be really careful with the um, conclusions you draw from correlational research. Now, what I've been trying to do is I've been weaving the story. A correlation has to exist for causation to exist. And so these relationships and these associations are, are existent. And I think I'm like, okay, this, this, the right pieces are being placed, but you're exactly right. The next step is going to be conducting an experimental research uh, study where we actually test the effects of CrossFit. We have pre and post data and we have comparison groups. If I'm getting really dreamy, I mean, I would love to get some funding and pay for people coming out of, of treatment to get into CrossFit for a year and just measure different outcomes like we talked about just now and compare them to folks who just, you know, as practiced, you know, leaving treatment without a CrossFit intervention, but just as, as prescribed currently and compare and see, you know, are the folks who are engaging in CrossFit, are there clinical and practical differences in that group compared to those maybe who didn't? And so that would definitely be the next step. And that's where you can really assess 
is, is there an effect, you know, relative to CrossFit and long-term recovery? Um, but we'll see. I just need to get some funding. <laughs> that's the next step. And I, I, that's an important aspect as well, because if we, if there, uh, that, that correlation can be shown, that very strong correlation that they're related to outcomes, then funding will can be made available for individuals to pursue this as a pathway um, towards their recovery because evidence supports it. As our former single state agency director for mental health and addiction here in Connecticut said, if you don't show me outcome, don't ask me for income. And we know mm -hmm. that funding is often tied to outcomes, not necessarily for research, but for activities and programs. And so we want to be able to have that outcome. Uh, and I, one of the things that's my goal for the, uh, the substance use disorder treatment recovery community in Connecticut is to understand the value and importance of research. You don't have to understand the research, but understand the value and, and be able to look and understand, you know, why something may work and that information is in there. So reading the research and, and that's important. Um, before we finish, is there anything about that you'd like to add? Anything you want to brag about? Oh gosh, brag about the only thing I would want to brag about is really more on the people that I've worked with. Um, I'm so grateful to the people who have shared their stories with me, who have given me anecdotal data that has led to empirical data that I think can actually make the world a better place and make people's lives better at the individual and at the community level. And so I, you know, I said it earlier, but I'll say it again that. I've never met as a collective group, a group more just gritty and passionate and strong than folks who have managed to stay in long-term recovery. They're not perfect and they have stories like we all do, but man, I'm so inspired by them. And if I can do anything to help folks get to that place, I want to do it. And so Anything I would brag about would just be, you know, I've, I have somehow been in the right place at the right time mm. in some of, of these things and I've met the right people and I'm just excited to continue this work for sure. What you just mentioned really helps explain why research shows that around 50% or more of people that work in this field are in recovery themselves because they're mm -hmm. passionate about it. Um, and that they were, they recognize the benefit in helping others and that, you know, uh, no person is an island unto themselves and, and all of the cliches, they're really true when they work uh, in this field. I do have one final question though that, that I didn't warn you about. Okay. <laughs> are you a bear or are you an Aggie? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I, what is it? Can I plead the fifth? I'm yeah, both. because I don't want to get you in trouble. Texas is a big state. I don't want to get you in trouble. Um, oh my gosh. I have so much love for Baylor. I have so much love for AM. Both have <laughs> given me degrees. Both have employed me. Both have provided people and experiences that I could never trade. So uh, I have to say I'm I'm an Aggie bear or a bear Aggie. Okay. I, love, I love both. <laughs> That's the best. Really, I think a cop really, out on this is the best way to go. <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad they're no longer in the same conference. Right. So I can really hear for them separately, you know. <laughs> well, I have a soft spot for AM and uh because AM is the original and only 12th man in football. I'm sorry, Seattle, you copied it. Yes. <laughs> it belongs to the Aggies. And it, it stays it and it should stay in college station. So I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Um, it's really fun. I enjoyed talking to you before. I enjoy it now. Um, 
that's going to do it for this episode. And I'd like to thank Dr. Meg Patterson of Texas A&M. Like I said, home of football is only an original 12th man for joining us. And I hope you found this an interesting and fun discussion. We, uh, again, extend our gratitude to Mountainside Treatment Center for their generous support. I'm very appreciative of all my friends up there. And, and we here at the CCB appreciate all of you who listen. Please don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast application. I recommend Amazon. That's where I listen. And we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.